The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So again, I'd like to welcome everybody that's tuned in online. Um, just quickly before I start, if you do have any questions for this, please uh, write them in the chat uh, and we'll get to them after I, after I give a, uh, a short talk. And so what I thought I'd actually talk about today is uh, actually it's, it's a special day on the, on the, at least on the Theravada Buddhist calendar as today is the entry to the rains retreat. Um, or what's also known as the Buddhist Lent, or we also call it the Vasa period. So it's a very special day for Buddhist monastics. We determine to stay in the one place for the next three months. Uh, but also yesterday was actually quite a special day on the Buddhist calendar as well. It was uh, a day called a Salaha Puja, which is the day that the Dhamma gave the uh, sorry that the Buddha gave the first Dhamma teaching. So this period of time on the Buddhist calendar is actually quite quite special for us Buddhists. Um, so that's what I thought I'd actually go over today. Um, I thought I'd go over what actually the Buddhist Lent is, what the Rains Retreat is, uh, what are some of the rules that we um, as monastics uh, we, we abide by uh, during, during the Rains Retreats period, um, and also how does, what do we actually do at the time, what do, how do lay people uh, associate with us at this time, and how it actually pertains maybe you know, to you and your life as well. But then I'll also talk a little bit about Asalaha Puja as well and how these two, these two things, Asalaha Asalaha Puja and the Range Retreat, they tie together because um, there's something very special about this time. So, so yeah, to start with, what you know, what is the what is the Rains Retreat? What is the Vasa? Maybe, maybe some people don't actually know what the Vasa is. They don't know what the Rains Retreat is. Um, if you've uh, maybe grown up in a Buddhist country, you'd probably probably know that it's a three month period of time where we as monastics we stay put in the one place, and the our rains retreat period it coincides with the rainy season in uh, throughout areas of, of Asia. Um, uh, the rainy season lasts for about four months, but the Buddha made the stipulation that we as monastics should stay in the one place for three months. Um, and anybody that's been in uh, uh, the rainy season in areas of Asia will know uh, it's it rains a lot, so it's pretty hard to it's pretty hard to move around. And actually, you can. Actually, can sort of see that at the moment. Say uh, in India, there's like a big flood in India at the moment. Um, uh, also, parts of China, it's flooding as well. So a lot of rain happens at this period of time. So it's you know having it rain so much, it makes it very inconvenient, or made it very inconvenient for the monks and nuns to move around at the time because monks and nuns usually you know wandered around. So uh, obviously, two thousand five hundred and sixty plus years ago in India, roads and things like that weren't very good. So it wasn't conducive for the monastics to stay outside during that period of the rains retreat. Mostly monastics lived under trees and things like that. So the Buddha made that stipulation that we stay put for three months, at least three months out of the, out of the four months uh, uh, rainy season period. Now, the, one of the stipulations about, about, uh, uh, having the range retreat and doing the range retreat is that 
we as Manat, as I said, we have to stay put for about three months. And so we determined to stay in one place for three months. And that you can stay you can you can stay in a monastery, so you can stay with other 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 monastics. Uh, so you can stay like five, ten, fifteen, twenty of you, hundred of you, whatever. Or you can just stay by yourself, or just one or two or three. It doesn't matter how many monastics there are that you're staying with. Um, but the only stipulation about our rules is we have to actually stay in a place that um, has a. Uh, that that is a that is a dwelling that actually has a proper roof and it has a proper door, so and that was obviously to keep the rain out and all these kinds of things. But uh, also, it was it was a way for the the monastics, you know, not to at that time you can't stay under a tree and all that kind of thing. And so so for the rains retreat period, you can't stay just just out in the forest. You can't stay in a cave. Um, you can't stay in like a hollowed out tree there's a like there's a cool thing in our rules where, where the buddha says don't stay in uh, during the rains retreat don't stay in a hollowed out tree because you know you are like goblins if you do that so you know we can't act like goblins during the during the three months range retreat so so as long as you have a place that has a proper roof and a proper door then you can stay there as i said you can stay by yourself or with many other many other monastics so usually what we do is we'll, before the range retreat starts, we'll sort of decide where we're going to stay and uh, a few weeks beforehand, get the place ready and just make sure everything's uh, yeah, ship shape with it or whatever. So with that as well, uh, another part of our rules as well is that actually you can stay in like a, an interesting thing is you can stay in like a caravan as well. And a caravan can be moving as long as it has a roof and a door. You can stay with a caravan. The caravan can be moving around, but you can determine to stay the reins in that in that uh, spot. So it's not necessary. Obviously, most people, the most monastics these days, stay put in one spot. But it is possible to sort of move around as long as you have those roof and the the door. So as we determine as we determine to stay for three months in one place, that does what. What constitutes staying for three months in one place is we have to greet every dawn in the place where we determine. So the so the building that we've determined to actually stay in, you have to be there in the dawn of that day. If you if you say you determine to stay in a place and you you know go for a wander at four o'clock in the morning and you don't get back before dawn, then you've actually broken your reins retreat period. Now, if you've broken your reins, it's it's it is it, it's. It's only actually a small offence for us to break our reins. It's only a, 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 a an offence called a dukkata, which is an offence of wrongdoing, which is analogous to, you know, not wearing your robe neatly and all these kinds of things. But the the more you could say the more serious side of it is is if you break your reins, then you can't partake in in uh, what we call the katina privileges. So if there's five of you staying together and you have a katina, you can have particular kinds of katina privileges later. So, but anyway, you have to stay in that spot for uh, every dawn. Now, so what does this actually mean then? Does that mean we're like, we're totally housebound? We can't, you know, we can't leave. We can't leave the little room that we're in. We can't leave the hut that we're in at all. No, no, it actually doesn't mean that. If if there is something where we we have what's called legitimate seven-day business, we can go away for a period of seven days or six nights um, 
uh, and we can go away from the place where we've determined to stay for the Vasa, but we have to, we can't just get up and wander off and go. You have to, you have to, like we determined to stay in the one place, you have to make a determination oh, and tell another, tell another monastic or something that um, I'm going away on seven day business, but I'll be, I'll be back before dawn on the seventh day. So you can go away for a period of time and come back if you have something, uh, something necessary to do. So some of the things that are considered legitimate seven-day business, is, it's actually pretty broad. We can, if somebody asks us to come and actually teach the Dhamma, then we can go and teach. If somebody wants us to go and make merit, we can do that. Um, also things like with our fellow, fellow practitioners, fellow monastics, if they're starting to have uh, doubts about the holy life, they want to disrobe or they have doubts about an offense or that they're sick or something like that, we can go and help look after them or you know, help alleviate their, alleviate their doubts in that time. Likewise, if it's a member of our family or something and they're sick and they need our help, we can go for, for up to seven days and help look after them. So you can do this as many times as you need to. So ostensibly you can, you know, uh, determine to stay in one place, uh, ask to go away for six nights, come back, stay there one night, then go away again six nights if you want. So you can actually do that. Most, most monastics don't do that, but it is possible just in case you do have something that you really do need to do. And so if you do seven day allowable business, then it's fine. You don't actually break your range retreat. But there is other instances where we, we can change where we've determined to stay for the rains uh, without actually breaking our rains retreat um, in that if we're, we've decided to stay in a place but maybe the place is like dangerous, there's wild animals or something or, or there's, uh, you know, like in the time of the Buddha, obviously there was bandits and all these kinds of things. So if you're staying in a place and it's not safe, then you can leave without breaking your rains. Also, if you're staying in a place and you can't you know, get enough of the four requisites or the food or something like that, it's not making you sick. You can actually leave and go to another place. So there are these, oh, and also another, actually, like, that's right, another cool one in that is, like, if, if you're thinking of disrobing, um, somebody's trying to tempt you to disrobe, you can leave that place. Um, but another, like, an even cooler part of that is if you've decided to stay in a place and you find abandoned treasure in that place and you think cool there's this abandoned treasure i'm 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 wealthy now i'm going to take this and i'm going to go out and live a life of luxury you can leave if you've found that abandoned treasure and so it doesn't tempt you to leave anywhere uh leave the holy life so you can change where you where you've determined to say the reins if there's a good enough a good enough reason so while we're doing the reins retreat as well um we it is a period where we sort of put aside a lot of the projects the the external projects that we might be doing um and we spend more time actually practicing and we might make sort of determinations and things like this but the the buddha also stipulated that we can't make what you'd call like like ridiculous vows or silly vows say for example you can't determine to not speak at all for the for the three months because you know you have to live in proximity with other people you have to communicate with them you can't make uh determinations to not let somebody partake in any of the requisites in the community you can't do sort of silly things like that but you can 
but you can make different kinds of determinations around your practice and, and only if it's something that's that's helpful for you in your practice. Now, if we do this and we stay, you know, we stay put for the three months range retreat and we, you know, we don't break the reins and all these kinds of things. At the end of the three months, we have, if you've stayed in a place that has uh, uh, more than more than four monastics, five monastics, you can partake in a, this really, really nice ceremony that we do at the end of the reigns called the Pavarana ceremony. And what the Pavarana ceremony is, is it's a chance for us to get together as a community and and uh, ask you you ask the sangha for forgiveness of any wrongdoings that you might have done over the past three months, um, any sort of uh, you know, problems or issues that arose between you. You ask everybody for forgiveness, and then you also ask for pavarana, which means um, you ask for like admonishment uh, and admonishment, or not in the way of somebody saying something bad to you if like asking if there's anything you think I can improve myself with personally or in my practice please you know please let me know now so it's a nice way it's a nice way to like end the vasa period because you know you if especially if you're you know you're living with in a big group of people and you're sort of stuck together for 3 months and you can't go anywhere and you're in each other's faces all the time and you you just can't get away from these people obviously you have problems and uh, you have sometimes you have problems, sometimes you have issues, and so it's a nice way to 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 end the range retreat by saying, "Look, I'm sorry if I was not so nice during this period. If you do have any problems, please just let me know, and I'll try to improve myself in the future." Um, so yeah, because usually usually the range retreat it goes like everybody starts the range retreat and everyone's happy and really want to practice and all these kinds of things and you're really you're really psyched up for it. By then about like halfway through you're starting to get sick of everybody and it's like oh, I wish I could go somewhere. I'm sick of this guy. I'm sick of sick of this person. And then by the like the last by about the last few weeks it's like cool we're out of here. <laughs> so you know, Pawarana is a nice way to to put aside any sort any sort of like problems that you may have had with people over the over that period of time. So so that's in general that's our rules around the around the Vasa period around our range retreat period. But you know what do we actually do as monastics during that time? We it is, as I said before, it is a time for us to put down the more external things that we might be doing, any kind of projects or building or things like that that we might be that might be taking up some of our time, and we use it as a time to reestablish ourselves and and refocus on the reasons why we we wanted to be act, become monastics. Because the rains retreat period is a time where we don't have to do those things, but it is also the time where you recollect of it's it's another year has passed for you being a monastic so as a monastic you count how many years you've been amongst by how many vases that you've gone through so ostensibly if you were ordained two days ago in the next three months you'd have one vasa so but then you know then the next year after the next vasa you'd have two vasas so it all works out in the end but it's but we just count however how long we've been a uh uh, basically, our monastic birthdays by the amount of vases that we've gone through. So, as I said, we use this time to re-establish ourselves, and we might make determinations during this period where, say, for example, we practice a little bit more seriously, or we do more practice, or we do some kinds of practices that that you know really sort of go against the grain of the things that we want to do. So, 
uh, what a lot of monastics will do in this period, they might do some of the, what we call the, the some of the 13 aesthetic practices that the Buddha recommended we do. So, for example, a monastic might determine for the duration of the three-month period, they might determine just to eat alms food. So when they go on alms round, they'll only eat the food that they get on alms round. Uh, they won't accept anything that's back in the monastery. Or... Uh, or they might determine to maybe just eat a certain amount, say maybe 20 mouthfuls or 30 mouthfuls or something like that, or decide not to take any of the afternoon allowables um, that, we can, that we can have in the afternoon. We might make other determinations around our practice. Say, for example, we might be doing uh, X amount of hours and we decide we're going to do more than that. So if we're doing six hours of practice a day normally, then we decide, okay, during the Vasa, I'm going to do 12 hours of practice. So... And we can do other, there's other things as well that a lot of monastics will do. They might take on what we call the, the sitter's practice, where you don't lie down. And we might do that maybe like one night out of the week. And so we'll stay up all night practicing Dhamma, practicing meditation, listening to talks, make, make one day out of the week the sitter's practice. Or might do it for longer periods, might do it for a week, two weeks, a month, maybe even three months we might do this practice. So... We can make these kinds of determinations to really reestablish ourselves in our practice, but it's also because we're not doing external projects, it also is a good time for us to maybe learn or relearn some of the things that we've we've been we haven't had the time to do. So a lot of times monastics might take this time to learn what we call the the patimoka, which is our rules. It's a like it's a 45, 50 minute chant. Might take that time to memorize that or memorize other other suttas and things like this or memorize some of the chanting that you hadn't done another thing that we do in in my tradition is during the rains because we're all usually together um we'll get together a few times out of the week and and you know go over our our rules again and and sort of refresh our knowledge and sit sit around and talk about our rules and just so we we're clear on our understanding of our rules it's a nice time to do it because as i said you're not doing any of the external projects so we get together and we go over our rules again we go over our our vinaya our patimoka um so we might do many of these different kinds of things or determine to listen to talks every day so but what do you know what do as lay people that's so that's what we do as monks but you know for lay people what do lay people do anybody so anybody maybe that's grown up in a buddhist country um they they know that the that the that the the buddhist lent period it's it's special not only for the monastics but for people in that in that uh in that culture in that community as well they might take that three-month period to you know, make some sort of changes in their lives. They might determine, okay, for this three months, for the, for the, for the Vasa period, I'm going to give up smoking or I'm going to give up drinking. or So they'll try to change some habits and do better habits. Or you know, they might do something a little bit more in line with Dhamma. They might decide, okay, well, I'm really going to keep the five precepts really well during this, during this three-month period. Or if they are already keeping the five precepts, they might decide, well, I'll keep the eight precepts. I might keep the eight precepts for this period of time for the for the Buddhist Lent. Some might even go a little further than that and go, well, I'm going to 
like the like the monastics are doing they're increasing the the intensity of their practice i might do that as well i might you know decide to maybe take up a a regular meditation practice or a regular meditation and chanting practice or if they're doing that again extending the periods so if they maybe if they're chanting for chanting and meditating for half an hour a night they might up that to an hour a night some people may even get a little bit more serious than that as well and decide, well, during this three months range retreat period, I'll also do a retreat. I'll go to stay at a monastery for a period of time or I'll go to the monastery more regularly. I'll go there, say, every week or twice a week or something like that. Um, and some might even say, well, I'm going to do a two-week retreat or a month retreat. And some people may even get more serious and take that full full time off, full time off from work and stay in the monastery for three months. And if they are really serious and really want to do it, they might sort of put their life on hold for a little while. And actually, um, uh, uh, this happens quite a lot in Thailand, that people will ordain just for the three-month period. So... As the monastics are increasing these, the the intensity of their practice, so can lay people. You can you can use this period to actually re-establish yourself and reaffirm yourself in the practice. And so, so you know, do you do you have to do that? Like it's you know, obviously as monastics, we we you know, this is our rules. We have to do this at this period of time. But do you have to do it? It's you know, obviously no. You don't have to if you don't want to. But it is, it's a nice, it is a nice thing to do because, as I said, there's something sort of special about this time of the year and it relates a lot to what happened, the, the, the special day that we had yesterday of, of uh, Asalaha Puja, where the day, which was the day that the Buddha actually gave the first teaching. And so I'll, I'll run over a... Uh, run over Asalaha, just, just in case anybody doesn't really know at home, and I'll sort of tell the story of that quickly and sort of see how it actually relates to this time of the year and how you can sort of use that in your practice as well. So for anybody that doesn't know, Asalaha Puja is the day that the Buddha gave the first teaching, and so we call it Dhamma Day. And what happened on Asalaha Puja was after the Buddha, after the Buddha became enlightened at Bolgaya, few months ago he while he was while he was dwelling in the bliss of enlightenment he had the thought that this dhamma is so deep and so profound i don't think anybody will be able to understand this at all and he was asked by the king of the devas to say please please actually go and teach the dhamma but uh, the buddha was reluctant to actually teach because it, he thought it was something that was so profound that nobody would actually get it so uh, after he agreed to teach, he wandered by stages from from Bolgaya to Varanasi, because he knew that at Varanasi there were five ascetics there. The five ascetics, what we call the Panchawaki, they were the ascetics that that uh, that that attended to the Buddha when he was actually when he was when he was he himself was practicing ascetic practices. But the five ascetics had abandoned him because they thought he because he ate something, they thought he'd gone soft and he'd given up his 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 quest for enlightenment. So the Buddha went he, he found out that they were staying in the the deer park at the uh, the deer park in Varanasi, so he wandered there to to actually see them and teach the Dhamma to them. 
So as the Buddha was approaching the five ascetics, they saw him coming and they, they, you know, as I said, they abandoned him because they thought he'd given up the quest for enlightenment. So they made the determination of like, uh, okay, we're not going to talk to, we're not going to talk to him. He's gone soft. Let's just ignore him. But there was something about the Buddha's cadence when he came and approached them that they they basically gave up that and they received him and they were they were you know happy to happy to see him so they offered him to sit down and so the Buddha actually said to the five ascetics at that time he said to them uh, I I have become the Samma Sambuddha I have uh, attained complete enlightenment I I. I have complete and clear understanding now. Listen, and I'll teach you the Dhamma. I'll teach you the Satcha Dhamma, the true Dhamma, so you can realize the Amata Nibbana or the deathless Nibbana. Um, so uh, the Buddha stated this to them, and they're obviously they were a bit apprehensive. They're like, oh, didn't you give up your quest for enlightenment? They were a little bit skeptical of this kind of claim. They weren't really receptive. So the Buddha changed tactics with them and he said to them in the whole six years that you're attending to me did i ever make a claim of enlightenment i could have made this claim at any time and you would have believed me but if i but i never actually made this claim um, i never said that i'd realized the dhamma to this level and they realized that the five ascetics realized that the buddha you know he'd never uh, he'd never bragged or gloated or anything like that. So they became a lot more receptive to, to the Buddha that, and that he'd actually attained the Dhamma and he'd actually realized enlightenment. So there was this, there was this sort of like switch in attitude from them, from the, from the five ascetics of being somebody that's resistant, but then now they're ready to actually hear the Dhamma. And so on that night in of what we call a salaha puja you can just sort of imagine it in this in this in this in the deer in the deer park it was this nice forest and it's it's you know, very very simple it's just it was just the buddha sitting there in the forest with five ascetics seated around him and at that time he realized that it was the right time for the dhamma to arise in the world and so as soon as he spoke the first words that came out of his mouth of the Dhamma Chakka Bhavatana Sutta, of the setting forth, the, setting in motion the wheel of Dhamma, this was the point that the Dhamma arose in the world so that people could actually listen to it and understand it. So we already had the Buddha in the world, but with, and that night in the deer park, as soon as he started to speak, then the Dhamma also arose in the world. This was a, this was very very special because it, it's not it's not just that it was this ethereal thing. Now this has been put into language. It's been put into a system where we can actually practice. And so for anybody that maybe doesn't know, the Dhammachaka was Dhammachaka Bhavatana Sutta, the setting forth the setting uh, in motion the wheel of Dhamma. This is the teaching, the central teaching of the Buddha, where he taught the four noble truths and the eightfold path. So, as he as he taught this, the Buddha's in the world and the Dhammas are rising in the world. But importantly, as well, what what was also happening at that time is one of the five ascetics was starting to realize the Dhamma. And the Buddha was talking about the four noble truths and the eightfold paths. He started to understand, and he actually broke through. And by the end of the sutta, 
one of the ascetics, Gautanya, had realized the first level of enlightenment, what we call a stream enterer or sotapanna. And so now there was the fully enlightened Buddha in the world, but there was also another person that had realized the Dhamma, that had realized enlightenment. And this, this, this really like overjoyed the Buddha because, as I said, he was, he was hesitant to actually teach the Dhamma. He thought it was too deep and too profound. But after his first teaching, somebody was able to become enlightened and realize this. And so with the, with the enlightenment of Gotanya, the Buddha said, uh, exclaimed with joy, Anyasi Vatapo Gotanyo, which means Gotanya knows, Gotanya knows. And so with that, the, actually the Sangha arose in the world as well. Now that there was another person besides the Buddha who had become enlightened, the Sangha actually arose in the world at that time as well. So right at that point is the time where we, where that, that which we take refuge in, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the triple gem, that arose in the world at that time. And so there's, this is, the Buddha, the Dhamma, Sangha has come to completion now and it's available for people to actually, to take refuge in and to listen to. So with that, Kotanya asked for the going forth and the Buddha gave it to him, the Ehi Bhikkhu Ubasampada, which is the, uh, uh, you know, Kam Bhikkhu and, uh, and he became the first, first Buddhist monastic. So over once the Buddha realized that he could teach the Dhamma to people and that people could understand it, he decided to actually stay there and teach the remaining four aesthetics, teach them so they could realize the Dhamma as well. So over the next four days, he taught, and on each subsequent day, each one of the, of the five four remaining ascetics realized Sotapanna as well. They realized the first level of Dhamma because the Buddha was staying in one place, teaching the Dhamma. And on the fifth night, the Buddha gave the second teaching, the what we call the Anattalaka Bhavatana Sutta, the teaching on the discourse of non-self. And on that fifth night, then all of the five ascetics attained enlightenment. So there, now there was six fully enlightened beings in the world. And this was really the start of the first range retreat because it was, as I said, Asalaha and the range retreat, they coincide with each other. So because the Buddha realized that he could give the teachings and if he stayed in one place and taught these people, then they could realize the Dhamma as well. They had an opportunity to practice the Dhamma and realize the Dhamma. This was something that was quite beneficial. And so it's beneficial for those people that the five ascetics that were practicing and now there's, now there's six enlightened beings in the world on the fifth day. But something also was happening on the fifth day as well is there was a, a, a young man from the city of Varanasi who was, who was the son of a very, very wealthy merchant and he had, you know, he had absolutely every kind of material, you know, material wish that he, would, he could desire. Um, uh, you, you, you could basically say he was like a like a trust fund baby or something. He had you know parents very very wealthy. He had a whole retinite, a female retinite, and entertainers and all these kinds of things. And on that fifth night, he actually woke up very very early in the middle of the night and sort of saw everybody, all these people that were entertained him and were a source of pleasure for him. He saw them asleep and just 
lying, drooling and all these kinds of things all over the place. And he started to become very dispassionate. And he saw saw that this was not something that was uh, very appealing. And so he started to say to himself, depressed am I, oppressed am I, depressed am I, oppressed am I. And he just started to ruminate and he wandered. He just wandered out of his wandered out of his mansion, just wandered and just he's ruminating, depressed am I, oppressed am I. Just kept wandering and wandering and wandering. And then finally on that on the in the very, very early hours of the morning, he actually came across the Buddha in the deer park. The Buddha was up walking meditation in the morning. And so this very you know, this very rich young man who had never, ever practiced the Dharma, never thought about this, just just that night had just just started to uh, bring about some dispassion to the world, came across the Buddha because the Buddha was staying in the deer park. And the Buddha noticed that he was ruminating and so he invited him to sit down. And the Buddha actually instructed him. He gave him what's called the the gradual teaching, which is where the Buddha would start by teaching about dana, about generosity and giving. And then he moved on to the benefits of sila, of morality. And then he moved on to sagga, which is uh, the celestial the celestial realms. But then he moves on to the dangers of the, or the, the, yeah, the dangers of sensual pleasures, getting, getting involved in sensual pleasures. But then the joy of renunciation, of nekama, and then finally taught the Four Noble Truths. And with this, this, this young man, this trust fund baby, this, this, you know, this person that had never ever practiced meditation in their life actually became a sotapanna and reached the first level of enlightenment. And this young man, Yasa, he was awakened to the Dhamma just by hearing the Buddha, just because he was able, he wandered out and the Buddha just happened to be there. And so now there was seven, seven uh, enlightened beings in the world. And obviously, so the next morning, Yasa's, Yasa's parents wake up, realize Yasa's gone. So his father, father wanders out to try to find Yasa. Obviously, he's missing a child kind of thing. And so he's quite worried. Yasa was wearing these golden slippers. And so where he'd walked to, there was a tr- like a, a thin trail of like uh, uh, gold there. So his father followed the golden slippers, the the trail of the golden slippers. Cinderella, but anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, so he followed the trail of the, the golden slippers, and he came across where the Buddha was. And obviously, the, the father's very. He's worried. He's lost his son. He's, he, he asked the Buddha, "Have you seen my son? Have you seen Yasa? He's in a heightened state of agitation because he's lost his son." And there must have been something very, very calming and soothing about the Buddha because the Buddha said to him, just sit down, sit down, you know, call, you know, call off the search party for your, ch- for your child and I'll teach you the Dhamma. And so Yasa's father sat down and listened to the Dhamma. And again, the Buddha gave him the gradual teaching and Yasa was actually sitting off to the side. And after the Buddha gave Yasa's father the gradual teaching, Yasa, as he became an arahat. But his father uh, realized the benefit of the Dhamma and gained great faith in the Buddha. And so he asked for refugees. In the, he asked for the, th- uh, the three refuges in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. So Yasa's father became the first male lay disciple of the Buddha. 
the first Ubasok. So in the subsequent day, uh, Yasa's father invited the invited the Buddha and the and the now the now six other fully enlightened beings to his house on the seventh day, and on that day in in that house, then Yasa's mother and his sister became the first female lay disciples of the Buddha, and so this all this all came about because the Buddha had decided to stay in one place and to teach. And so people could now actually come and listen to the Dhamma and gain benefit from the Dhamma. And subsequently, because it was the rains, the Buddha decided to stay on in the deer park at Varanasi for a further two months. And in that time, Yas, uh, something like 53 of Yasa's friends came, listened to the Dhamma. These were people as well that had never practiced meditation before. Never. These were the, the upper echelons of Varanasi society. And they were actually able to come and practice the Dhamma. And by the end of that two months, 53 of Yasa's friends all became Arahats. And so many people in Varanasi were able to come and listen to the Dhamma because the Buddha decided to stay in that place for that two months. And so at the end of the two months, the Buddha said to these now 60 Arahat, these fully enlightened beings, he said to them, said to them all, go out now. You've become enlightened to the Dhamma, so go out now and teach the Dhamma that is beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end, because there's other people out there that have little dust in their eyes and that they can see the Dhamma as well. So this is why this period of a Salaha Puja and the, the period of the range retreat is very special. It's because the Dhamma has now arisen in the world and if there are members of the Sangha that can stay in one place. It offers people the opportunity to come and listen to the Dhamma and gain teachings and gain understanding. And so if you are one like the five aesthetics that is practicing, you come in contact with the with the with the Buddha and the Dhamma. And you can practice this and gain enlightenment from this. But even if you are somebody that's maybe not practicing so much, say for example like Yasa and his family and his friends there's this great opportunity now to come in contact with the Dhamma and to realize the Dhamma and practice the Dhamma. So this is why this particular period of a Salaha and the rains retreat is very, very, very special. It's an, it's an opportunity not just for monastics to reinvigorate themselves and practice, but for also for many other people to come and listen, listen to the teachings. So with that, that's probably, that's probably enough for me enough of me talking talking about the the benefits of the asalaha puja and and the vasa hopefully it's been of a benefit to you in some way um and hopefully i i do wish everybody all the best during this vasa period the range retreat period hopefully you have the opportunity to practice and to realize the dhamma just like just like the five ascetics and just like yasa and all his retinite Sato? Thank you, Ajahn. We do have a couple of questions here. Very good. So, first question is, um, what does the Buddha say about dealing with anger? Not necessarily anger and an immediate solution, but pent-up anger and a past that creeps up, seemingly out of nowhere. I'm... 
I'm not sure if the Buddha sort of like talked about like pent up anger in any way. Obviously, he talked about anger more generally, and that that anger is uh, 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 anger is one of the underlying defilements that keeps us stuck in the cycle of of rebirth uh, uh dosa it's something that we that we like innately just have to innately have to deal with so anger can obviously can come in many forms it can come in a form of sort of like dissatisfaction um it can but it can also come in the form of all out all out hatred um uh, and violence and all these kinds of things so how did the buddha teach to deal with anger well this is obviously through training the mind through a practice like meditation we start to learn to train the mind and practice and in a way start to learn to control the defilements that arise in the mind and understand these defilements that arise in the the, arise in the mind the defilement of anger so whether it's full-scale hatred full-blown anger or it's or it's just sort of pent-up anger that arises out of nowhere it's still it has the same underlying quality this underlying quality that it is this form of form of anger that has arisen in the mind so how do you actually deal with that then well we can do it by many you know many different ways you can learn to as i said learn by controlling the mind and actually seeing that anger is just something that merely arises remains for a while and passes away and you can try to watch that objectively or you can do practices that uh the sort of the counterbalance to that say for example a practice like uh developing loving kindness uh you can do this and this helps alleviate the anger that that arises in the mind so there's really really the main way that one sort of deals with anger is through training one's mind training one's mind to let go of this anger that we actually have or to change the quality of the mind into something that is more more in the realm of kindness hopefully that answers the question thank you Ajahn. our second question here is uh, relating to the person you were um kandana was that the kandana Kodanya, yeah yeah uh what what Kandano actually, sorry, hi Arjun. What Kandano actually understood that made him reach the first level of enlightenment in the first sermon? It must have been more than the Four Noble Truths. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously tough for me to say exactly what Kandano like actually realized, um, uh, or, or what was the what was the what was the point that he actually hooked onto uh, that uh, made him become a sodapana. Um <clears throat> but there it obviously you know you, you would say it would be understanding some something about the four noble truths so understanding that there inherently is dukkha in one's life understanding that the cause of one's dukkha of one's suffering is our craving and our attachment to something and understanding that it can be let go of by practicing the eightfold path so he had to have had some insight into that because that was the actual teaching to for kotanya to gain 
insight into that in, into that for uh, insight into the four noble truths at some level and he became what we as i said what we call a sotapanna so there's this aspect of becoming a sotapanna where one sees through the transient nature of 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 the self so he would have understood that to some level he would have understood uh gone beyond you know adherence to adherence to any kind of any kind of external practices, any kind of external rites or rituals towards enlightenment, he would have realized that that was something that can himself that can arise in the mind. So the qualities of somebody that becomes a sodapana is or a stream enterer, you know, that's what Gotanya realized at that point. But he would have had insight into the four noble truths as well. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, in saying that, I say that with the caveat of like, I don't know what Cortanya realized at that point in time. Uh, we, we, can only, we can only go by, well, he listened to the Four Noble Truths and he attained Sotapanna and there's, there's those qualities that a Sotapanna reaches to. So that's, that's probably about all I can actually say of what Cortanya actually knew. <laughs> Thank you, Ajahn. Just on that, just, mm. just it was occurring to me as you were it, it seems almost um, extraordinary, almost like fairy tales, some of these stories yeah, from the time yeah, of the Buddha. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, as a practitioner, and many practitioners have been doing this for years, and seemingly, mm. you know, overnight these people turn into yeah. arahants. Yep, yep. Do you, I sort of, when I hear that, apart from it being a, occurring as a fairy, fairy tale, mm. it would seem as though they have been practicing mm. in the past. Mm. Um, as opposed to it just, you know, having the Buddha around and yeah. it, it just a light a light switch turned on. Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. It ca- it can be hearing these stories sometimes can be both. It can be very very inspirational, or it also can be very very disheartening. Of like, Yasa, the guy was like a trust fund baby, and he just wandered out of his palace. He'd never done any meditation, and all of a sudden he's enlightened just by listening to the Buddha talk for half an hour. Um, so it, it can be both of those things. So one of the one of the things that I've sort of heard of over the years, um, uh, just in just about people in the time of the Buddha. Obviously, as Buddhists, we sort of ascribe to we ascribe to the 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 doctrine of reincarnation and, and building. Uh, we we build our karma over over numerous lives life uh, numerous lifetimes. What is one of the general interpretations of this is that for a Buddha to arise in the world, the Buddha has to build uh, uh, his barami over many many lifetimes. Now, for a Buddha to arise in the world, he has to do that. But then also there are people around him that will also aspire to. Uh, say, for example, become like the great disciples of the Buddha or to be born in the time of the Buddha. So people, you even see that now in, in, in some, uh, some of, let's like, say, for example, like Mahayana traditions where people make a determination to become a Buddha or be born in the time of the Buddha and all these kinds of things. So these things were happening at the time of our Buddha as well. So people had made those kinds of determinations. So they'd built enough good karma and enough good barami over many, many lifetimes to actually get to that point where they were born in the time of the Buddha and born around the Buddha. And so you could say their 
their spiritual faculties were very, very ripe at that point in time. And so they were able to seemingly just hear the Buddha speak once and become enlightened. So it's something that these individuals had uh, developed over many, many lifetimes. Um, so for us now, we're, you know, 2,564 years later, you know, maybe, maybe we didn't actually make that determination to, you know, be born in the time of the Buddha and become enlightened in the time of the Buddha. You know, each of us has our own karma and our own parami. So we work with what we've got. But what is, we might think, we might become disheartened and think, well, well I've been practicing for many years, but oh, I, haven't, I haven't actually realized the Dhamma. But one thing you can think of as well is like how fortunate you are to be born in a time where the Buddhist teachings are available to you. There's so many, you know, there's, there's, you know, you know before 2,600 years ago, anybody in society was not, uh, it was, wasn't able to actually realize the Dhamma. But you've been born in an age where you have access to the Buddhist teachings. So the Dhamma actually has arisen in the world. And the Sangha has arisen in the world, people that can pass on the teachings. So you're, you are still very fortunate to have this opportunity to build good karma, to practice, to um, you know, have this available there and be moving forward and building, building more of your own good karma. So yeah, while it can seem fantastical that these people just become enlightened um, just on hearing one teaching, and it's uh, for me, it's like, oh, I've been doing this for years and it's, I don't seem to be getting where. So I've progressed a little bit, but I'm nowhere near, you know, nowhere near like Cordano just listening to the Dhamma. I've listened to the Dhamma Chakrapawatana Sutta, I don't know how many times, and I haven't become enlightened. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not on the cards for me, but I have been born at a time where I, have access to that teachings and I can make the best of those teachings and I can continue to practice. Thank you, Ajahn. Mm. Bhante, is it also right that one of the reasons living in one, in one place for Vasa is an opportunity for practice that's, that sometimes doesn't come up through living together? Yeah, yeah, there's, there, there, is, there is that aspect of it where it's... Um, yeah, one can, you know, uh, for me myself, I'm actually I'm actually staying by myself this vasa, so it's a it actually, you know, it's a good opportunity to to just you know, work on my own practice without having to sort of worry about you know, community engagement and all these kinds of things. Has its pros, has its cons. Um but yeah, usually what a lot of us say for example, I can only speak for like living in Thailand, uh, what we do a lot of the time is maybe we've ordained at a bigger monastery. Um, where it's convenient to ordain and uh, you can get some training and all these kinds of things. But maybe in the Vasa you might decide, well, this, this monastery, there's a lot going on, so I'll go to a smaller monastery where there might only be, you know, two or three or four or even, you know, maybe even five monks. So you, you're in a lot smaller community, so you don't have to, there's not as much going on. So you can take that as an opportunity to, you know, yeah, get away a little bit from the bustle of a of a bigger community and live in a smaller community and, and spend more time practicing. But in essence, in essence, so it is right. Yes, you you can use that to uh, um, stay more a little bit more isolated at that time. But in general, it is it is overall it is a time where we do tend to put 
a lot more of those, like the bigger projects aside for that period of time. Um, one, I guess one thing, say for example, maybe in some of the bigger monasteries that you might stay in as a monastic. Um, and as I said, in Thailand, like many people will actually ordain for that three month period. So you've got a lot of, depending where you live, you've got a lot of new monks. You've got a People that have just sort of come in, they've been a monk for like two weeks. They don't know what's going on. It's so they need a lot of training. They need, you know, they need to be taught a lot. Uh, they need to. They need a lot of care. They need a lot of attention. Um, you need to have a particular kind of schedule for them to follow, so they can actually start to realize what it's like to be a monk. And so maybe if you've been practicing a few years and you know all this basic stuff, it might be good for you to uh, get away from that for a period of time. And as I said, go to, as, go to like one of those smaller places. So it can be an opportunity for us to do that as well. But the main thing is, is like the bigger, as I said, the bigger external projects, we usually put those down and usually use this time to actually you know, practice more and live a little bit more quietly and in more isolation and have a bit more of a retreat. Thank you, Ajahn. Just one more question here. Yep. What would be the best way to repent for breaking the precepts? I realize Buddhism isn't about punishment, mm. but is there a but is there an act I can take to mm. neutralize my karma after mm. losing my temper, mm. etc.? <sighs> yeah, there's. There's ways, you know, there's ways that there's ways that you can do this, but to think of it in terms of neutralizing your karma and sort of like rubbing it, rubbing it out, rubbing it out of I've done this bad thing. I want to repent. I want to be, I want to be forgiven, and I want to rub this bad karma out. That's karma doesn't really work in that way. You can't just like ask for forgiveness and get rid of it. Um, but what you can do is do actions that um, build better karma for you. Um, so how can you actually repent? Well, this is actually this is this is quite a good thing to do actually to 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 start with to at least have this have this uh, compunction in your own mind to actually want to make up for something bad that you've done. Say, for example, if you got angry or something like that. So, you know, you don't have to be a Buddhist to do this, but you can say sorry. You can say sorry to the person. You can admit when you're wrong. You can admit when you've actually done something uh, that's hurt or harmed somebody. You can, you can make amends at least, at least in some way by admitting that you've done something wrong to someone. A good way to do this is to externalize it if you can. Um, externalize it and make it known to uh, maybe the person that you, you that you potentially hurt, or even to somebody that you know that's a that's a good friend. For example, you might you know you, let's say you've decided to keep the five precepts, but you know you go out you 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 go out and you have a glass of wine or something, and you think the next day I was like, oh, I really you know I just sort of got caught up in the moment, and I shouldn't have drunk a glass of wine I decided to keep the five precepts you know you can't go and like you can't go and sort of like knock on the knock on the door and confess to the people that you drunk alcohol with it's like I did a really bad thing last night I had a glass of wine with you and it was terrible and they'll be like I had a good time 
<laughs> so you can you can repent in different ways where you if you have like another uh uh, dumber practitioner friend or something like this you can say to them it's like look i i've decided to keep the five precepts and it just i just sort of slipped and i and i i i drank a glass of wine the other night i'll i know i know this wasn't something that was in line with the five precepts but i'm going to try to do better better again and if they're a good and if they're a good dumber friend they will say well good you know it's good that you realize this and it's good that you're trying to make amends for this and this is actually what we do as monastics we have a lot of rules and when we so every every two at least every two weeks um before we we recite our patimoka or recite our rules we get together and we talk to our other monastic friends and say to them it's like okay you know in the past in the past two weeks you know i did this and i did this and i did this um i realized it was wrong i just sort of fell off but i'm going to try to become better um, and usually the other monastic will say, "Very good. You know, it's good that you recognise this. Um, you know, try to try to uh, refrain yourself and try to train yourself in a better way." So, and we can and we can do this at any time. We can, you know, if we just, you know, if we do something one day and we realise that it was against the rules, you can get another monk, and you can confess to them. So, actually, this this act of externalising the thing that you potentially have done wrong is a very, very good way for you not to just erase the karma that you may have, that you may have uh, uh, made, but a way for you to restrain yourself and to do better in the future. And that's really the only way to get rid of your past bad karma is to make good new karma. You can't, you can't just magically make this bad karma disappear. You actually, you have to you have to build good and new and wholesome karma that 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 covers it over you could say there's a teacher in thailand who passed away last year his lumpo his name was lumpo ban and he gave me uh uh i was talking to him at one time and and somebody basically asked the same kind of questions like how do i get rid of my past bad karma he's like you you, you can't you can't actually get rid of it what it's like it's it's like it's like a Bad karma is like a pool of of dirty water that's sitting on the sitting on the ground, and so how do you get rid of bad, dirty, you know, disgusting, muddy water that's lying there on the ground? You have to hose it away with clean water, and so the only way we can actually get rid of past bad karma is by hosing it away with the good wholesome karma that we've actually made. So, this is this is really the only thing we can do. Realize that we've done something wrong. Realize that we've harmed somebody in some way. Even if we, if we intended to do it or we didn't intend to do it, sometimes we harm people and we, we're not actually intending to do it. But we can try to at least make amends for that by, by admitting that we've done this, we've done something wrong or we've harmed somebody in some way. And you know, by externalizing it and by asking for forgiveness and, ask, and saying and really actually saying you're sorry to that person. Thank you, Ajahn. That was the last question. We've got about um, 15 minutes remaining. Right. I, I did have an off-topic question. Which, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Which um, it's, uh, the last couple of days, in fact, yesterday there was a, um, um, a, a rally in Melbourne and in, yep. and in Sydney, yep. the Freedom Rally. There yep. seems to be a global movement around yep. that, in, yep. around the COVID restrictions. Mm. 
Can you talk a little bit about what freedom means from a Dhamma sense? Mm. Mm. I'm, you know, the I'm guessing I'm guessing these like these people are, are thinking of freedom, freedom in a different sense. Obviously, their freedom to move around, the freedom to do do what they want, freedom to uh, you know have their life operate in a particular kind of way they're they're wanting f- these people are that are uh, partaking in these and i'm just i'm i'm generalizing i'm guessing of what they want um that they 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 think that they're oppressed in some way um so they're rallying against that and they're getting out and they're and they're how would you say making them making themselves very very loud very loud and uh, saying that that they actually want freedom and they feel oppressed. Now, uh, that's you know they they have they have the right to actually go and do that. You know that's you know, that's what they, if that's how they if that if that's how they feel and that's what they want to do. Well, then you know that they they have the right to actually do that. Um, they live in they live in a free society, so they can actually do those things. But. If you look at it more from a Buddhist perspective, um, from from the perspective of what does freedom mean for a Buddhist, what does freedom mean in terms of Dhamma, it's a freedom from the oppression of any kind of negative states of the mind, of any greed, hatred and delusion, gaining true freedom from those things that disturb us, Greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. These are the things that continually, you know, make us, you know, make us act in these you know, repugnant kind of ways. It's the freedom from the influence of those things. We become free of any kind of desires to want things a particular kind of way. We, our freedom that comes through Dharma practice and through Buddhism is the freedom of of accepting reality for what it is and understanding reality for what it is whether it's a reality that we that we enjoy and that we find pleasure from or it's a reality that we don't enjoy and we take no pleasure from we can just accept this reality for whatever it actually is so we're free from the oppression of wanting reality to be a particular kind of way we're free from any desires that are driven by greed, hatred, and delusion. Um, these desires of greed, hatred, and delusion drive us to do strange, strange, strange things. So we're we're not oppressed by these. Any you know, what does oppression mean? Oppression means you're being controlled in some particular kind of way. You're there's some sort of external influence that is. You know, controlling your life in a particular kind of way, and so for us as Buddhists, as Buddhists, we don't necessarily see that this is an external thing. We see that we're oppressed internally. We're oppressed internally because of greed, hatred, and delusion. The story that are told about Yasa, um, he saw on the outside that that these things in life, in his in his external world, they they were. They were depressive. They were oppressive, but it's not just—it's not just the external world. We can—we can draw dispassion from the external world, but really, what we're dissatisfied with is our 
our reaction to the way that reality is around us. So real freedom for us is the freedom to become released from the oppression of a particular kind of reality that we think that we either want or we don't want. If we can become, through our practice, if we can become free of that, then it doesn't matter the external situation that one is in, whether one's uh, uh, the, the, the son the son of a, of a wealthy merchant in Varanasi and has every conceivable pleasure in the world, whether one is living in a modern society where we're under the grips of a you know, pandemic and a lockdown and a stay at home, we're not worried by these external things, whether they're pleasurable or whether they're painful for us. We're just content with reality of however it is. And if we can gain freedom from this external reality, then we truly do actually have freedom. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, no more questions. No more questions? Okay. Did you want to maybe do the... There was something that you were particularly going to read out or something? Or? Offline, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. No well, if if that's the case, we might we might have a have an early mark early mark today. So, I wish all of you that are that are that have listened to me today. Hopefully, some of this has been a benefit to you, and I do wish over the over the course of the next few months you have the opportunity to get out there and, and practice a lot more. Uh, you know, we're in lockdown, so hopefully you have a lot more time to actually practice uh, Dhamma at the moment and you can listen to a lot of teachings online so um, yeah I do wish you the best for this 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 Vasa period and I wish you all the best in your practice and in your life